We ride with a few important tools that I think we often take for granted, and those are our hands. Now, I don't need to tell you how important your hands are, but you do need to make sure that you do everything within reason to make sure they're as safe as they can be. But getting real protection, real protection, that takes a little understanding of the materials involved, not just grabbing a product off the shelf, which materials are best and what you should be looking for. On this episode of Adventure Rider Radio, we begin our gearing up segments. This one to do with hands and how we're protecting them. You're going to get more of these gearing up segments as we go along. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Payne. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jim Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters. Cyclepump.com. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. You know, when we think of important tools for our motorcycles, we often think of our tool role. It's natural. But two of the most important tools you have are your hands. And your hands should be protected. Protected from the elements, from knocks and scrapes that can occur while riding, in particular with an adventure bike. Now, we have two great ways to protect our hands that we're going to be talking about today. That is gloves and hand guards. Now, if you thought gloves are an easy subject, you might be surprised at just how diverse the choices are for materials and how important it is to choose correctly. Just because a glove looks like a motorcycle glove doesn't mean it's necessarily made for your style riding. As you know, at Adventure Rider Radio, we do seek out industry experts for all of our tech segments. And Tim Calhoun has been deeply involved in the motorcycle industry in the U.S. for decades now and probably knows more about gloves and materials and manufacturing methods than we want to know. So we thought he's just the one we want to talk to about gloves. Tim Calhoun, Dallas, Texas, Vice President of Sales for Quinn Design Helmets and board member for the Motorcycle Industry Council. Tim, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. So you, you've been into motorcycling for, well, you, you kind of made your life around motorcycling, have you? Yeah, uh, I fell into it more than I jumped into it. Um, grew up riding them, you know, did a lot of hunting, fishing, whatever with my dad and uh, always rode bikes. And then my uncle gave me a real dirt bike when I was probably, I don't know, 13, uh, 250. And from there on, I was pretty hooked. Uh, started street riding at 16 on uh, Kawasaki H1 500, uh, Widowmaker. <laughs> and started drag racing that in high school. Went in the army, got out. First thing I bought was a bike, of course. I went to school to be a school teacher was struggling to get the final classes I needed to get my degree. Went to work in a bike shop, and three months later, we're on the road and outside sales. And that was 1980, 
five-ish, I believe, six. So uh, it's been a while. And then since then, you've worked at a multitude of companies um, and some having to do with clothing specifically. Yeah, I mean, I worked at uh, several multi-line distributors, large ones, uh, Western Power Sports, back in the early days of building that that company and that brand. Um, Worked for Kerr Leathers, which was an American V-Twin leather company for quite a while, uh, most recently at Helmet House, where we were rebuilding both the Cortec and the Turmaster brand. So um, while I'm not a designer and I am not a, a uh, actual product expert, uh, I had a pretty heavy hand in that just because of writing so much and knowing what works and doesn't work. So what kind of things? I mean, they're, they're designing something like we're going to talk about gloves. So when it comes to gloves, they're designing gloves. Do they say, Hey Tim, what do you think? Or, or where do you, where do you chime in? Uh, a lot of times they'd toss me the gloves just to wear and go put on the street. Uh, same as Quinn does with a lot of helmets right now because I ride quite a bit and I put them through a lot of different conditions from sport riding to touring to you name it. But uh, in some cases, just try them on. Uh, my hand has always been a relatively typical medium American hand. Uh, maybe my fingers are a little more snossage-like, but for the most part, a pretty standard fit. So I have a pretty good feel for when gloves are made too tight or gloves are made too long or gloves are made too loose or made too small. So a lot of that. And then ideas on look, you know, I have seen stuff dating back to the 80s in the market um, come and go. Um, so what works, what doesn't work, uh, straps, all kinds of stuff. So, and luckily the last go around, I was working with uh, two really good individuals, um, one who had a lot of product expertise as far as materials and stitching and, and what's out there. And the other one, Spencer had a very good eye for design and was doing some really groovy kind of SoCal retro things with apparel and gloves. So it was a lot of fun to, to work with those guys. What's the helmet company that you're working with now? Uh, Quinn Design Helmets? Yeah. Um, we are probably the first legitimate smart helmet company. Uh, when I was at Helmet House, they had contacted me and said, hey, we'd like you guys to think about distributing these. And then I heard the word smart and ran for the for the woods because we'd had so many fiascos in this industry with quote-unquote smart helmets trying to do everything from, uh, you know, the failed Scully project to uh, – put cameras inside or put heads up displays inside helmets or you name it. And uh, when I finally sat down long enough to have a long discussion with them and they told me, you know, their helmet really focused on crash detection, uh, being able to send an SOS beacon if you were in trouble and integrated Bluetooth systems, it began to make a lot of sense to me. It wasn't whistles and bells. It was life-saving add-ons to a helmet. Hmm. So what kind of things? As far as the crash detection, yeah. well, we actually we actually integrate and complete chipset with dual accelerometers, a gyro, and a north pointing electric compass. So, if you were to crash, we actually know what direction you're going, how fast you're going, how hard you hit, where you hit, how many times you hit, and most importantly, whether you're moving or not after an accident. And all that happens in about 0.25 milliseconds. So, uh, we just had our first testimonial come back two weeks ago of a gentleman who. Had the low side to avoid a crash. Uh, it alerted his wife immediately with his location. And not only does it give you a physical like map of where they are, it gives the actual GPS location. Um, his phone flew off the bike, got run over and crushed, but the signal went out uh, before that had happened. And his wife actually called EMT and they were on scene in seven minutes. So that's what we're doing to make a difference. The biggest problem being 
uh, the average rural crash in the United States uh, is about a two and a half hour uh, turnaround to the hospital for a motorcyclist. And the average urban is, believe it or not, an hour and a half. A bike accident is just much different than a car accident. It takes longer to react and slow the traffic down. You have to find who they are, their license, their registration, or whatever information you can on this person. So it's it's a little more involved than a car wreck. And so we're trying to shorten that window from time of accident to get them to the hospital in the golden hour. And uh, we'll have some things announced in December, basically, where we'll begin to look at uh, some add-on EMT services and other things that uh, will definitely accelerate that, too. It'll let them know who you are immediately and where you are. So this is technology that's built into a helmet. You, you buy the helmet. Yep. It's integrated into the helmet, the full chipsets in there. So dual 100G accelerometers and the rest of it. And basically through your phone, Bluetooth, uh, the headset, your Bluetooth regular uh, uh, communication set connects on one Bluetooth and the Quinn Arc chipset connects on another Bluetooth. And uh, we have some smart some, some smart stuff built into it as well. We had a second testimonial last week where the gentleman forgot to reconnect his helmet to his phone, but we kind of have a protocol in the background that's still watching uh, for an accident. And he got, he got actually part of his head run over and the helmet did phenomenal. And uh, same thing, it alerted his friends. They were on scene immediately to help him out and he had not even reconnected it. So we have mm. truly some smart features built into our product that are kind of um, those, those uh, fail safes just in case. Why not make it a, a I'm, I'm trying to modify your product here. Why not make it something that, that sticks onto a helmet so that you don't have to get a whole helmet? You don't, you guys don't have to design helmets for every kind of rider and every kind of color and, um, and every, all those choices that we like to make. Why not make it so that it sticks onto the helmet from the outside and you can move? It there may it. be that day, I think for, out of the gate, um, Ani, our founder, who is a bit of a, a protege, he's only 34 years old. He built a company called Cranium with a K. You can find it on YouTube. So he actually designed a helmet that could slow down uh, impact forces into a helmet about three times better than standard EPS does. And he did it out of recycled cardboard. Um, What he did is looked in the natural world for anything that uh, could absorb a lot of impact and wasn't uh, getting uh, concussed. So he looked at rams and he looked at animals and he landed on a woodpecker that could hit a tree 10 times in a second, not concuss. So he had a woodpecker or a stuffed woodpecker. They, they cut in half and he put the membrane of the beak under a microscope and he essentially mimicked that design in a cardboard weave and put it into a bicycle helmet. And basically the standard test in EPS with an eight pound head form from 15 feet was about a 250 G drop with his liner inside the helmet. It was a 73 G drop. So wow, yeah. that's really incredible. So it's the beak on the on the woodpecker that absorbs Correct. the energy. Yep. Wow, yet it's still hard enough to chip away the wood. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Wow, it's like a shock absorber really on the backside of it, basically. That's amazing. Wow. So oh, that yeah. that's really interesting. So this is the guy who who is the uh, designer of the or the person who started the Quinn uh, helmet. Yeah, he had a good friend actually uh, crash in India. Didn't really get hurt too bad, but got trapped under a Harley. Um, couldn't reach his phone, uh, couldn't move and didn't really break anything per se, but he nicked his arm and he bled out for eight hours. So he ended up, uh, the left side of his body ended up, I believe, partially paralyzed and, and, uh, it just was a bad scene. And Ani had developed this chipset when he was building the bicycle helmet cause he couldn't afford a laboratory using college. 
And he just looked at how to modify that and put it into a helmet. And by being in the helmet, it gives us the most accurate reading. Um, but we wanted to showcase our technology, and that was one of the fastest ways to do it, was to literally build a helmet and showcase it. Um, we are working on newer pieces. Um, we were working on pieces that can be eventually probably stuck onto things. Um, so there will be a great expansion. And we're also working with some different manufacturers uh, in power sports and other sectors. We just released a smart helmet with um, Abbas in Germany, who builds locks. You may have heard of them. They're also the biggest bicycle helmet company in Germany. So we've built a smart bicycle helmet now. And we're working with a manufacturer to put uh, crash detection, rollover, and SOS uh, onto their vehicles as well. So wow. behind this, there is a whole technology division doing a lot of really interesting stuff. Wow, that's really neat. I, I mean, I can imagine a patch that you would stick on, you know, almost like one of those uh, those smoking patches you get that you stick on the back of your helmet or something that would uh, have that technology in it. And you could, uh, you could, well, maybe move it from one to another, but you could certainly put on whatever helmet you choose. I mean, yeah, that's pretty neat. Um, and it uses, yeah, the chipset's the size of a nickel. It's not a huge chipset. It's very, very small. Oh, it's that tiny. Oh, yes. wow. So, and, and it uses cellular to connect. It does right now. Um, you know, eventually we plan to have a world adventure type, uh, type helmet that hopefully will connect, uh, via satellite globally, a lot like your, your spot threes and the other devices that right. are out there. So we're, it's a, that's a ways away. We've, we're drinking through a fire hose right now. We've got a lot of projects. So. Yeah. Wow. That sounds pretty exciting. I, I can see why you're involved it, with it. I just want to, uh, in all honesty, you know, I, I was a teacher and a coach and I loved doing something I felt like made a difference when I was young and it meant a lot to me. And I still see some of those kids today. And after this much time in this industry, I'm not looking to put a notch in my belt or make a name for myself or any of those things. I've, I've had a really blessed career. I just want to do something that made a difference. And when I continue to see people get lost when they crash and nobody could find them for days and that's why they died and all those things. Uh, I've had that happen to friends. I've had that happen to friends of friends and it seemed like a real good opportunity to hopefully leave a lasting difference in this industry and hopefully change expectations of consumers on what they should expect for helmet to do for them in the future. So. Mm -hmm. Wow. How about you as a rider, Tim? Um, what, what sort of rider are you? Um... <laughs> too fast no, I'm kidding. no that's not the question i was asking <laughs> um i very think honest it, of you though yeah <laughs> I, i've always had a bit of a problem with speed i just asked the local police but anyways um i think you know it's funny you, you always talk about i joke with our friends as we get all of this evolution on a motorcycle from leaning forward to sitting upright right um i actually uh had my whole lower back had three new discs put in a year ago and i i bought a Goldwing because it was the last thing out there that I could ride and actually not be crippled for days. And then I fell in love with the stupid thing because it's just like a Barca lounge. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and um, so I, I have a Ninja 1000. I have a couple dirt bikes. Um, but lately, I've really been aiming towards an adventure bike just for a do-all. Uh, I took a big trip before my back operation just knowing that if they screwed it up and I ended up in a wheelchair, I had one last epic trip. And um it's something I'd want to do my whole career. And I think the, the sad part is a lot of us in the industry spend our whole life in this industry and we don't really have those opportunities always to take a week or a couple weeks off and go camp and ride and whatever. And, and once I did that, it's kind of what I'd always dreamed of. And believe it or not, in, in 30 plus years in this industry, I'd rarely had the chance to do more than a weekend somewhere. And um, realized, you know, at 56, I'm not getting younger and there'll be a day where I can't put a leg over a bike. So, uh, 
got a good buddy here in town I've worked with for years and we ride together and my wife rides. So uh, I made the mistake of going down and putting a leg over Africa twin and fell in love with it because <laughs> I can actually put my challenged inseam feet on the ground on that thing, believe it or not, uh, better than I can on my Ninja 1000. And uh, it's just a great bike and that's probably the direction I'm going next. And I'll get rid of everything else and just simplify down to one really good bike and then do all the things I want to do to it. How about gear? Are you an AtGat person? All the time. Yeah. I, uh, the funny part is like two years ago, my wife and I went to a small town in California for 4th of July. And I mean, it was like 115 degrees, ugly hot. And so we were going down to see this rodeo and we decided, you know, let's just wear like, you know, boots and maybe a helmet. And we got on the bike and rode maybe to the edge of the parking lot. We turned around and went back in and geared up because I couldn't stand it. I felt like this is the day I'll die if I don't put gear on. Yeah, or worse. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's just, I feel better in gear now. It's been too many years and I've had plenty of crashes on tracks. I've been lucky on the street, knock on wood. And uh, I just, mostly because I pay attention, but I, I'm a firm believer in gear. Yeah, it only makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you know, the, the thing is, everything's a risk in life. Obviously, motorcycles higher risk than a car, for instance. And if it is, and there's some things that we can do to try and at least mitigate that risk, mitigate the, the chance of, of dealing with some problem, I mean, why not do it, right? Wear the gear. It's it's as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, when you look at, you know, like I said, I coached for years, you know, I wouldn't sit a kid on a football field to play football with no gear on. Mm -hmm. um, and you're going at much higher speeds with much higher impact levels on a motorcycle. It's not hard to figure out. Yeah. Well, and we're, and we're talking about gloves today. That's what we're here to talk about. Yep. It's about um, motorcycle gloves and it's part of AtGat. It's part of the thing that we do. Why do we wear gloves? Like what can gloves actually do for us as a rider? Um, I think, you know, for, for me, it's one of the most basic points when you fall, most typically you are reaching out or rolling onto or putting a hand somewhere that can make impact. And so it's one of the first things, typically it's hands, it's knees, it's feet, it's head. Those are the things you're going to hit in most cases pretty firmly and can cause some problems for you. Mm-hmm. The most part is it, it creates a higher level of protection, especially for your epidermis, the skinnier hands, uh, in worst case scenarios. Um, it also offers protection mm -hmm. to the elements, depending on what you're riding in or where you ride or what time of year you ride. And then at the most basic level, if you're doing long days like adventure riders do, it can help prevent blisters and skin wear, especially in the throttle area on a hand. So those are the most basics of why. And the last part is because if they're right, you kind of look cool in them. <laughs> and of course, that's that's always under there, isn't it? So I mean, yeah, weather course. protection, I think, is, is probably one of the biggest things that people think about when they think of wearing any sort of clothing. You think of weather protection, you think of gloves for weather protection. I know there's some people that will wear fingerless gloves. Do you, do you think there's any place for fingerless gloves on a motorcycle? Um, yeah, if you don't like your fingers. Mm. Um, is there a place? Yeah, it's, something's better than nothing, Jim. You know, and if you're a person that just doesn't want to wear anything and that's the, the, the you know, the, the most you can put on, then when you put a palm out, at least you're not going to shave your palm off. So are they ideal? No. I mean, I've seen guys in full race gauntlets hit the track and blow a middle finger completely off the bone mm. in a glove. Right. So if people don't understand how brutal it can be, you know, I've seen a guy go down, uh, push his hand out to protect and it ripped the glove open and literally degloved his finger. So that's how violent it can be when you hit the ground. 
let's talk about the the making of a glove. And and the reason I want to do this is because I think if we understand how motorcycle gloves are made, and in particular, what makes them different in the makeup from other gloves, then we can sort of better understand what we should be looking for. So as far as, I mean, starting right at the top, if we're looking for gloves, and I'm not talking about shopping here, but I mean, um, is, is there a certification process for gloves in North America? Um, not in North America, no. I think a lot of uh, riders who begin to educate themselves are definitely looking for that CE either garment approval or the CE armor uh, in different garments they're wearing, which essentially means uh, European certified, if you break it down, is what it stands for. Um, but no, there hasn't been... There's been discussions of it just because I think it's becoming more important to weed out uh, everything from crappy self-certified DOT helmets that don't have a, an ACT lab test behind them to gear that people bring in that's just, you know, just short of wearing a good T-shirt. So I think we're definitely due for somebody to step up or for an organization to step up and say, we're going to start doing this. Yeah, because there's all kinds of things in that certification process. They talk about burst tests where they're talking about the seams. They talk about abrasion resistance and, and how much it can take as far as abrasion, the material itself. And these are all the things that um, unless there was some sort of standard there, you you really don't know what you're getting. True. I think, um, you know, we talked earlier at one point. I just I think if you stick with most finer brands, you're typically going to be okay because for the most part, a lot of them sell in Europe or they build to a higher standard. But the problem is there within those brands, there's gloves starting at, say, $25 all the way up to $300 on a regular basis. So within those brands, you kind of need to know what you're shopping for as well. Let's talk about material for it. I guess there's really the two different kinds in there. There's leather and textile. Is that right? For the most part, yeah. Yeah, so leather and, and textile. Um, can you talk about those and, and the, the difference between leather and textile and what it means to us for a glove? Yeah, I mean, in most cases, when you see, I'll start with leathers. So in leathers, there's 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 quite a few different types of leathers, um, both by animal and and by type of hide from that animal. The most common stuff you see uh, out there in gloves is typically cowhide. That can also be calf hide, which has a tighter cell structure than, than, than a grown-up cow. Uh, kangaroo is, is very typical, um, though it's been banned in certain states in, this, in the United States. And goat is probably the most common you see in the palms of gloves, mostly because goat has a very, very high uh, lanolin level. So the leather tends to be a little bit softer and more subtle, a lot like deer skin, but tougher than deer skin. And then from there, uh, you have synthetic leather or faux leather, um, which isn't bad and offers uh, good abrasion resistance still. Um, and it's a good vegan-friendly alternative for riders who don't want to use something that has animal products in it. And then from there, you go to grades of leather. And in grades of leather, you're talking about um, whether they split it, uh, whether it's a split suede or an embossed grain, whether it's um, nubuck suede. There's there's a million different ways, but typically you want to look for full grain or top grain leather is what you want to look for within a grade of leather. And full grain is considered the best and strongest basically because um, the entire grain remains intact. That means they don't skeeve it or shave it and um, provides better durability and longevity than, than other shaved down leather. Um, that's also why it's the most expensive though, typically. And then um, top grain is typically a bit thinner than full grain and they typically sand it or skeeve it. Skeeving is kind of like running it over a wood planer for lack of a better term. 
And they do that to get rid of imperfection. Some companies even actually run press rollers where they print a cowhide pattern into that leather so it looks like it's right off the top hide. Wow. Um, and that doesn't affect the quality of it. That's just the um, for aesthetics. It's just aesthetic, so it looks cleaner. Mm-hmm. But the problem with using a top grain that's been skeeved or shaved or split is that um, you can hide scar tissues while they do that a lot of times. And those are going to be weak uh, points in the leather where you see scar tissue. So that's why a lot of them do it. Um, and then there's guys that actually use steer hide, uh, super heavy weight, but you have to do additives and waxes and really work that hide and, and they'll last a lifetime, but they also take a lifetime to break in. They're not always the most comfortable out of the gate. So, um, the most popular, like I said, probably the most exotic you can see is something like, um, stingray used in a glove it's very tough skin you don't see a lot of it anymore but by far the most part as far as you're looking at actual cell structure is going to be uh as far as tight as kangaroo kangaroo tends to be such tight cell structure that if you use it for a suit you really need to perforate it because it's just too stinking hot to wear without some type of breathability um calf hide tends to be phenomenal um certain companies out there for years have touted their cows are only raised in pens and milk fed what that really means at the end of the day is there's no barbed wire you're not getting scar tissue and then uh, top grain cowhide and then goat skin those are those are the most typical wow that's uh that's a lot to take i could go on forever about (laughs) it but for the most part if you're looking for a leather glove you want a kangaroo or goat skin palm or cowhide palm and you'd like to get for the most part a full grain leather or at worst a top grain leather in that glove okay and now, um, what about um, uh, um, textile? It's going to be one of those days, isn't it? And, <laughs> <laughs> yes. What about textile? <laughs> so textile is a whole other deal. I mean, it's it, a lot of times textile gets introduced so that you can put better materials in the crash areas, like the palms or over the fingers, but can save money on the textile itself. Um, they tend to be more comfortable. They're typically better for either cold weather, wet weather, or hot weather because they breathe so well or they they block water. Um, there's quite a few, but the majority of them are made out of most typically um, a nylon or a polyester of some sort or another. And that's, that's um, the core materials. And then from there, Jim, it goes into, is it a winter glove? You know, what kind of, what kind of uh, uh, insulation or insulation do you use in that? And there's quite a few different brands out there as far as insulation uh, for those. Uh, typically, they'll use uh, heat lock, Thinsulate, Thermalite are probably three of the more popular ones. And then for me, I think if you're going one step further to a really cold environment, there's obviously plug-in gloves or electric gloves or what I think are more flexible, more usable, in my opinion, are liners, electric liners, because you can put them into any glove, so it gives you more flexibility by season. And I typically look for a 12-volt plug-in versus a battery. Battery will last you yeah, a couple hours at most. 12-volt, you know, you plug it in, you're good for the day. And then from there, you're talking about waterproofing and exterior materials. So I think coatings on the exterior are as important as anything that they're properly coated, the material itself. Um, and breathable. Whatever they use on the very inside of that glove is going to be important because if you warm your hands up, your hands are going to sweat and then they're going to get wet. And if they don't breathe, it's not going to wick that sweat off. And then your hands are going to get cold anyways because you have water in there. So uh, 
membrane liners are probably the best. They're really much better at keeping water out than letting uh, water evaporate through them, but they're better than not. Um, stitching is super, super keen on waterproof gloves. Um, these could be heat sealed, seam sealed. Um, there's a couple of stuff, you know, a couple of products out there people can use on almost any glove. Like AeroStitch makes a great product called Seam Grip or Seam Seal for high wear areas on gloves. It's a great place to reinforce like the curve between your, your index finger and your thumb. Um, Nick Wax is a great product for leather. There's an old, old, old company up in Portland, Oregon called Langlets, and I've been using their leather dressing since I was a kid. Um, it's amazing stuff, and they're a U.S. only, U.S. built. They build all kinds of great U.S. products. Um, so all those things play into it, and we haven't even gone to really into you know, armor and threads. But threads you want to look for typically um, a nylon, polyester, or a Kevlar reinforced threads are typically the very, very best for strength. You don't want cotton sewn gloves. Period. Okay, why? I knew you were going to ask me. That. <laughs> Um, cotton just doesn't have the durability or the strength. And typically, um, you get it in the sun, you get it wet, and you get all those variations, cotton falls apart very quickly. And cheaper gloves may use some type of cotton seam or a cheaper, uh, not as good polyester. So I always look for what they stitch with, and more importantly, do they double stitch critical areas? Is it exterior stitching uh, for comfort or interior stitching? Uh, in my opinion, it's the best because when you fall – you're not going to grind through that seam like you would with an exterior sewn glove, but some people don't like the feel of the extra bulk inside the fingers when they do interior stitching. So the thing is with, with this is that we've got material, obviously, that the glove is made of. That's very important for all the reasons that you sure. said. And stitching is, is probably that thing that you don't really look at because, um, if, like you said, if it's cotton stitching, cotton is, is not very strong. It's got all those other problems with it. But they can also use polyester, and which I imagine nowadays polyester thread is probably even cheaper and easier to acquire than any organic thread, any cotton thread. So... Um, how do we spot this stuff and how do we, how do we tell, you know, if they're using the right thread, if they're using the right stitching and where it should be? I mean, how's the average person sort that when they're looking at a glove? What you want to do is, is do your homework, first and foremost. Um, you know, go to the websites of the companies you're looking at. Uh, go, to, go to online companies that do reviews of a lot of product. And a lot of times they'll call out these items for you. Um, and if you have a question, write the manufacturer. Say, do you double stitch your seams and which gloves do you do it on? Don't be afraid to write to people. They're going to answer you back and give you a solid answer, especially U.S. companies. But any any better company typically is going to double stitch critical areas. Uh, and you're talking gloves. When you start pushing in the, say, the $50 range or so and up is when you start to see things improve dramatically and quickly. When you're buying just a basic motocross-type glove, with the synthetic leather palm, they may be really comfortable to wear, but man, they don't stop nothing. They're going to shred in, in a half of a half of a second. They're not, they're okay. But, you know, I know when I put those kind of gloves on, on a hot day, I also know what, you know, what can happen. They're better than nothing, but, but they're next to nothing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, as far as, the, again, what people, a lot of times the label includes a lot of this information. So take the time to read the label. And if you're old like me, bring your glasses with you. So, so you can read the label. And um, a lot of this is typically included on the write-up online or, or the actual label itself. So you can see the materials. But, you know, you hear a lot of times about, oh, polyester melts and nylon melts and all these things. And I got to tell you, the temperatures they melt out today are, are ridiculous. And you're going to get... 
uh, you know, three or four second slide out of most of these with no issue whatsoever. And, and most slides are not going to ever last longer than that. It's just, it's not. We're going to take just a two minute break and then when we come back, we're going to talk about armor and a whole lot more. Stay with us. When I was a kid, we used to skate on a frozen pond down the road or the river, which is further down than that. When it got really cold, the river would freeze over. And the memory that sticks with me from way back then was just how cold my feet were at the end of the day. I'd come back home and I would sit down by the wood stove and, and try to warm what felt like two frozen blocks, my feet. That wasn't so bad when I was a kid, but now... I want warm feet, and I don't want my ride to end because I have cold feet. My solution is to wear the best cold weather socks that I've ever tried, and that's Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly socks are made with a blend of merino wool and possum fur, so they have the, this incredible ability to retain heat because merino wool and, and possum fur are incredible insulators. But they also have natural lanolins in them, which means they don't hold odor. It's it's amazing, but you'll have warm, dry feet that don't stink. Now, I don't want you to do this, but you can wear the socks day after day, and they still don't stink. Don't do that, but it works. Don't ask me how I know. Warm, fresh-smelling feet from Pearly's Possum Socks, the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is the website. Order yourself a pair. Matter of fact, get a couple of pairs for the cold weather. And make sure anytime you're dealing with them, inquiring anything, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. Road Dog Publications is your road to adventure. Now, I think we'll all agree that the next best thing to doing the adventure yourself is experiencing other riders' adventures through their stories. It's a big part of what we do here at Adventure Rider Radio is we bring you stories like that. But a book, you can sit down and read through a book of someone's adventure and you get an in-depth experience. You almost ride along side by side. And that's what Road Dog does. Road Dog specializes in motorcycle travel books. From top to bottom, Road Dog Publications is all about producing great books for us to read. Now, their, their website is RoadDogPublications.com. Many authors are under that title. Drop by his website, have a look what he's got. And anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you throw in there that you heard him here on Adventure Rider Radio. RoadDogPublications.com. And I want to also remind you that a lot of the titles that you'll see on his website, we've had those authors on this show talking about their adventures. So just fantastic adventures. Drop by and have a look. RoadDogPublications.com. So what we're looking for with gloves, obviously, we, we said is, is weather protection, abrasion resistance. And that, that is from if we were to have a get off, but also even just for blisters and things like that. Um, but I Correct. think any glove would do that. But the other one is impact. How effective are gloves at protecting us from impact? Um, a lot of that comes down to the type of glove you're wearing. So, you know, there's, are you you're talking about puncture? You're talking about just pure hitting the ground hard? Well, I guess either one, but I mean, um, yeah, hitting the ground hard, I think would be the, I mean, I guess it could be either one really. Um, it could be a stone in the ground. True. Uh, if you have a better made, even, a, you know, ADV glove or, uh, kind of an in-between short gauntlet or a short padded glove. Most of these have slightly padded palms, so you're not going to feel those hard rocks or those pointy objects on the ground uh, come through and hurt your hand as much when you put it out the block. Uh, on the exterior or the backside, you're going to typically see some type of protective knuckle. 
And that can be made from a host of products from steel to titanium to carbon fiber to just some um, to just some uh, injected TPU type stuff in the, in the fingers. But all that helps that joint area. The more sen- serious you get with a glove, they tend to start protecting the second joint of the finger as well. And then full gauntlets or even three-quarter gauntlets do some stuff to protect the wrist area, especially the scaphoid one on your, on your wrist that when you hit, a lot of these offer either a harder protector or a padded protector over that scaphoid, which is one of the most sensitive areas you can hit and damage when you fall. And, and having a gauntlet, especially a double closure gauntlet that pulls that leather area down tight, is also going to slightly limit the movement just a little bit more. And, and more. But it's not going to be a cast by any means, but it just strengthens that area a little bit more than it would be without it. You already mentioned uh, about putting your hand out, which is a natural thing for people to do. They put their hand sure. out as, as we start to fall. That is going to have uh, palm uh, implications when your palm hits the ground at the bottom of your fingers. Where are we going to run into spots where we need knuckle protection? Um, it could be as, as simple as riding down the highway and the car in front of you throws a rock up and it nails your, your knuckle dead center. I've seen knuckles shattered. Mm. So um, it could be the debris on the highway flying. It could be if you're going down a trail and the rider in front of you pulls that tree limb back and that thing snaps right into your hand. That is a bad day in motocross gloves that I have had. Um, it could be as simple as falling on the ground and having your hand still on the handlebar when it gets hits the ground or gets trapped trap between the ground and the handlebar. So it happens a lot more often than you think. Um, I did judo for a lot of years, about 15 years. So when I fall, I don't put hand first. I tend to tuck and roll or slap and roll more. I fall well. Let's say that, Jim. I've done it a lot. (laughs) But, you know, that's something that I've done so much, it's more of a natural reaction to protect myself. And I've been fortunate because of that. But most people tend to stiff arm. And that's a problem, both in snapping wrists and damaging palms of your hands and all kinds of things. But it's it's a natural reaction. Mm Mm-hmm. So the armor is something that, that we can look at as, um, as, as added protection. Now, I'll just throw in here that most people who are riding adventure bikes are going to have hand guards. I would hope they have hand guards, the hand protection that you get there. And that will also, they usually have a, a piece of plastic mounted to them. They'll have a stiff aluminum bar and then a piece of plastic mounted to them to help deflect things like that. So a lot of that will be taken care of, but certainly not if you go down and you, your hand gets trapped under, which is a, just a disgusting thought. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. horrible. If you look at any top road racers in the world, I won't say most of them, but a good part of them are missing a, a big part of their pinkies where they've slid low-sided at speed and literally ground their pinkies off. It's That's, it's it's very common. It's really disgusting. But so the, Sorry, <laughs> it's just the truth. <laughs> the, the other thing I want to ask you about is, is wrist straps. Okay, because yes. I, I always thought wrist straps, to me, in my mind, make sense to have them on there to keep those gloves in your hand. So if your hand happens to shoot behind you or something and, and all of a sudden the pull's in the opposite direction, it doesn't just pull your glove off or it gets caught on the handlebars, whatever the case is. Um, what do you think of wrist straps? Uh, properly built, that glove should not come off easily. I mean, at all. Um, most wrist straps today are using like a hook and loop closure through like a D-ring um, or just a hook and loop closure. They also can use as many as three different Velcro closures, especially on a long gauntlet where you have a wrist strap or double wrist strap and then you additionally have a cuff closure that may go over your leathers or your jacket or what have you. 
Um, so they are very conscious of creating a very strong closure in that area, both for added protection on the bending of the wrist and as well um, if you slide on that area and finally so it doesn't come off your hand. But yeah, absolutely look for wrist straps. They're, they're definitely a, a benefit. When we're talking textiles, what textiles are tough, like the leathers that you talked about, the, some leathers being tough, the full grain leather being the, the ultimate, what's tough in textiles? Um, Clarino is probably the thing that comes to mind the most, and it's probably one of the most used material. There's also some man-made suedes that work pretty good, but Clarino is probably the exception. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting material because it is a man-made material, and it is made um, – from, uh, I believe, polyester, if I remember right here. I'm trying to think here. Um, I know, you know, the way it's done is essentially um, there can be as many as 2,000 strands of this polyester uh, in what would be the size of a human hair. It's that intensive a deal, right? Mm. And it, uh, what it does essentially is they they create a... Uh, like a polymer, they put it in along with this thread, and then they essentially like cross cut it, lay it into sections. Again, they layer it with this polyurethane, so they can create thickness and strength and weave. And then they put it together, and they can either dye it or they can actually color it through the polyurethane process. And then they apply it, and it's it's a really good, affordable material um, that can be used uh, in a, in a multitude of ways. I mean, they've been using it in boots for years and years and years, and that's actually the industry it came out of um, was boots. And 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 uh, you know, it's been around since about the '60s. And at the end of the end, it's basically a, a microfiber with a collagen structure. Um, so. If I go into the process a little bit more, I'm just going to pull in some things from my deep memory here. When they do the threading of it, then they I know they comb it, they layer it, they feed it into a needle punch machine so it creates like an unwoven finish. It doesn't look like a material. And then they use the cross-section to make that final material. So uh, I think they call it um, islands in the water or something like that because it's all these threads that live in this polymer base. And it's it's a pretty interesting process, but that's the most commonly used. So um, you find that in the palms of just about every motocross glove, a lot of the cheaper street gloves. And typically you see like a grayish colored sort of um, uh, suede-ish type material. And that's the most common one you see, Jim. Well, what's the advantage or disadvantage, can you talk about that, of textiles versus leather? <laughs> Um, over time, I think leather wears typically better than like a Clarino or a textile does. It doesn't wear out as quickly. The Velcro can't pull threads of it out. Um, just wear resistance is going to be the primary thing. And the other problem with Clarino, depending on whether it's true Clarino or some other, you know, similar product, it can actually tear a little bit too versus leather can tear if you over, you know, when it gets old and aged and dry. But uh, Clarino seems to be a little more uh, susceptible to wearing in little clumps and or tearing the material. So it just in, in, in my usage, and I know they can build Clarino that's super tough in boots and stuff, but the way they make it for most gloves just doesn't seem quite as durable as a good goat skin or leather palm. Well, we also talked about environmental things, that, that being that probably one of the first things people think of when they think of wearing outerwear is environmental, waterproofing, insulation, cooling, things like that. Sure. I know you briefly talked about that. 
But can you talk about waterproofing in particular with leather and with textiles? So with leather, there's a couple things out there. So you can treat leather to be much more water resistant and you can do that by rubbing in specific waxes and oils as a final finish. Um, you look at some of these older, heavier leather companies that are out there. A lot of these guys um, will take and they actually do this buffed wax finish on those jackets where they're buffing that hide with a specific mixture of of polymers and waxes, and that helps waterproof it and also helps increase the durability. Um, treating the seams is important uh, of any jacket that you have something on those seams to make sure the water doesn't seep through those stitching holes. That's probably the most typical area you're going to get wet and leather first is where it's been stitched. And then uh, depending on what they offer you with the jacket, but most times today you get a windproof waterproof liner or a windproof waterproof liner with a thensulate vest. So you have layers and options within that jacket as well. And that waterproof membrane you put inside of it you may get the jacket wet, but it's going to keep you dry for the most part. So that's an important piece. Now, when we're talking about uh, insulation and cooling, you did mention the heated gloves. There's not much, I don't think, for, for cooling other than wetting your gloves and, and letting the air evaporate the, the water in them. That'd be one way. As of yet, I don't think, unless you know of any ones that have cooling. No, there's no active cooling. Um, if you look out there, a lot of gloves out there offer everything from small finger vents. They're like a scoop vent, like a hood scoop on a car used to be, but they're on your fingers. Mm -hmm. And they do the same thing in the knuckle area. Um, they use uh, different materials like 3D um, mesh, which is a little bit wider open mesh and breathes a little bit better. But you may still have leather fingers uh, as far as the the palm or the ground facing, maybe leather um, the back of them may be leather with a mesh in between to allow breathability. So there are some really good uh, compromises. I think probably the best way to talk about gloves in general, Jim, is that everything you buy glove-wise is a compromise, and you need to understand that. So that cold-weather glove is not going to be great in the summer, nor is that summer glove going to be great in the winter. So like I told you when I was riding the one time, I, I carry typically two sets of gloves with me minimum. And usually it's a shorty, uh, warmer weather glove, and then I carry a full leather gauntlet depending on the riding I'm doing that day. And then in the winter, I will carry my gauntlet and I will carry a gauntlet that is a lightly thensulated waterproof glove should it start raining on that day I'm riding. So it never hurts to have that balance of good and great. So here's a good glove to ride in all day long. And if it gets really cold today, here's a great glove to put on my hand, which is a colder weather glove or vice versa. So I, I know I'm advocating for multiple pairs of gloves, but that's the best solution I have found in my, you know, 40, I guess now 50 years of riding I've done is know where you're riding, what you expect to happen while you're there or while you're on the road and prepare for it by having the right tools. I like that. And we've heard the word compromise on here many times because that's, I mean, that's life. I think there's very little that you can do. You don't have to compromise on. There's always something. You can get one thing and, and not the other. And I do the same thing. I have two sets of gloves. I have one that I consider my off-road gloves, which are basically just like motocross gloves, very, very lightweight um, not for speed. And then I have my gauntlets that I'll have depending on the weather, you know, either my insulated ones or my normal ones for the street. And uh, yeah, it's a little bit extra bulk, but it's well worth it because if I, when I get on the trail, I want that extra flexibility and the dexterity that I get from the, the thinner glove. Yeah. I mean, gloves pack small. I mean, yeah. they're not, 
you know, you can shove them in your jacket. You can, you can find plenty of places to shove a glove. So, so when it comes to shopping for gloves, what do you think are the minimum protection areas that we should be looking at? So in other words, should I be looking if I'm going to shop for a glove and I'm talking for, for, um, riding a street mainly with, with some off road. So am I looking for a glove that has, does it have to have armor? Does it have to be leather? You know what I mean? So what, what sort of things should we be looking for? I, for the most part, my preference is leather or leather with some textile, that being given some flexibility or cooling. Um, I don't look for a pure motocross glove. I have those for motocross riding, but I look for something with a little beefier palm typically because inevitably if you're on a fire road or then a highway and then some dirt, there's always that highway part. So I try to find something that worst case scenario, what's going to do the best. And I can live with a little bit warmer glove. You want to see a leather palm if possible. You, typically you want it to be goat skin or kangaroo or, or cowhide in that palm area. And if it can cover the entire palm all the way to the tops of the fingers on the palm downside, that is ideal. On the back side, there's all kinds of different protectors you can have for your knuckles but eva foam is one of the one of the more flexible and more comfortable ones it still offers you a good degree of protection or tpu uh, both offer you a good degree of protection without being probably uh, overkill you know not being a big metal knuckle or carbon fiber knuckle um, the palm should be reinforced in multiple layers of materials beyond that that leather palm and padding in some cases if possible a thin pad that again helps from the pointy objects hurting and then um, you know it used to be back in the day they put small rivets in, in, in the palm for sliding until they figured they'd heat up and burn little circles in your hands but <laughs> yeah now um, now you tend to see like I said they can treat these leathers too with different materials for higher abrasion and tighter cell structure and sometimes on the palm they do indeed do that to inject like a PVC into them to again strengthen them even more so there's ways to do that but back to your question uh, I think a good leather strong palm um, a wrist closure on that glove. So for me, a short, a short gauntlet or a shorty is what I call them is probably as, as low as I'll go. And it has a strap you can actually pull tight, not just it goes across the back of your, your wrist. And then, um, from there, if the top side on a uh, summer glove has some little, uh, rubber vents that blow air in and help cool my hand, I look for that a lot of times. Um, and then at the end of the day, the most important thing, Jim, absolutely hands down, the most important thing is when you put your hand in that glove, is it pre-curved? Does it feel good on your hand? Because that little extra stretch between your index finger and your thumb that's tight is just going to piss you off when you're riding and gripping a handlebar or that joint not quite getting down to, you know, the area between your fingers. That's not going to feel comfortable when you ride, you know, and people saying, oh, I'll break them in. That's great. But for the hours you spend in pain on your hands riding, it makes it miserable to ride. So find a pair of gloves that fit you well. Don't worry about the brand as long as it's a decent brand. Just find gloves that feel right. And and um, the problem is a lot of times these European brands are sexy and you put them on and they're built for a European hand, which is typically thinner fingers, longer fingers. I mean, the big difference, Jim, if you look, um, Joe Rocket was the first company to really go out and realize a huge difference between American sizing and the rest of the world. And they did a great job of kind of setting a new standard in the U.S. But a European extra large jacket, and if I remember this right, I believe is built for somebody who's six foot two and 185 pounds. 
an American extra large jacket is built for a guy who's 5'10", 210 pounds. Wow. That's the difference. Sleeve length and, and width of body. We're just chubby folk over here, Jim, and that's the way it is. It's surprising that you can even get anything to fit, isn't it? When you look at all the different shapes and sizes, I mean, I often think about the the companies that make textile or make jackets in general and think they are doing a darn good job to be able to cover all these different shapes and sizes. It's unbelievable. They they are. And it's, it's, you know, it's always a consideration when you're building. You really have to start paying attention to who your key audience is. What's your buyer like? What do they ride? And then you build accordingly and trying to be, you know, everything to everybody. It's a tough, it's a tough call. That's mm-hmm. why you see so many jacket types, so many glove types, so many boot types out there. Is, you know, they've really got to a point now in this industry where if you can't find something, I don't know why, because there is literally something for every rider. And that's why you'll, you'll hear people say sometimes, oh, I, I can't wear that clothing, that, that brand, it doesn't fit me, you know, or gloves or whatever, you know, because that, that company is, is focused on what their buyers are and it's not you. Yeah, absolutely. And the same is true to some degree in helmets. Um, you know, North American market builds primarily for intermediate oval and I'm a little rounder in that. So I struggle with certain, you know, Japanese brands and other Japanese brands fit well and I, Korean brand fits well. So you, again, just because you're a large doesn't mean you're going to be a large in every single helmet or every, you know, if you're a medium glove, doesn't mean you're going to be a medium in every single glove. Most European gloves, you're going to go size up. If you're a medium, you're going to be looking at larges. So don't just go by, oh, I'm a large, because that is not going to cut it. You need to get it on your hand. You need to go to some stores and try some stuff on and find a brand that feels good to you. Do you have any, um, as, a, as a final thing here, do you have any buyer's tips for us how, how not to get fooled? And one of the things I want to throw out there is that I know a lot of people shop online and they will find some gloves that look fantastic and, and they, they tout all the, the, the stuff that you look like, it looks like there should be there. And maybe it's some, an eBay thing or something else where, you know, it's a manufacturer maybe possibly you've never heard of before. Do you have some tips to prevent us from falling into things like that? Yeah. I mean, use your writer forums, use your online sources. Don't be afraid to write a letter or pick up a phone and call somebody and say, hey, tell me about this brand wise, because most companies will do that for you. Um, You know, and listen to look at the reviews that people are writing. Uh, There's always going to be that negative nanny down at the bottom. But look for, you know, is it a three? Is it a four? Is it a five? And then read what they're saying. Is that that a writer like you? Take the time. If you're going to spend even 50 bucks on a glove, even 50, spend the time to make sure you're spending a wise 50. And if you're, if you're finding a better deal, guess what? There's usually a reason for that. I can import gloves from Pakistan or China, a good glove that would retail for, you know, I could retail online for 50 bucks that I could probably buy for five or six bucks. Doesn't mean it's a good glove, but I can find it. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem. So when you stand, you know, or excuse me, when you buy from companies that have solid reputation, and that's the Climbs and the Cortex and the Alpine Stars and Dainese's and the rest of them, they've built that reputation on people trusting them and knowing that they're trying to deliver something that really will offer a high degree of protection to them. But don't just look at the most affordable. If you're just buying the brand to buy the brand, yeah, you can get a $29 glove. It's not going to do a lot for you. Spend the time to buy a good enough glove that's going to offer a decent level of protection. And most of the time, somebody working in that store is going to know enough about it to tell you something. Um, but, you know, like I said, do your homework. Leather palms, look at what the stitching is. Um, 
look at for the features as far as ventilation, breathable, thensilates. When you see 3D thensilates and, and key names, Kevlar's, uh, you see Gore-Tex's in gloves. Those are not cheap to put in gloves. If you're wondering why a glove can go up to $200, $300, Gore-Tex, you can only be an improved Gore-Tex maker if you buy X amount of Gore-Tex a year, which means you're building a lot of stuff in Gore-Tex. But it is still to this day pretty much the best breathable material in the marketplace, and you pay through the nose for it, but it's a great material. So the reason gloves get more expensive is quality of hides, quality of stitching, quality of armor, quality construction, quality of interior liners. And that's the last part. That interior liner beyond the, the membranes, like in a winter glove, is typically going to be like a fleece-type liner, which is very comfortable and keeps your hands very warm. In the future, you're going to see, you know, other stuff pop up. Um, like, you know, I sent you a, a link to, I believe it was the carbonium, which is an amazing material that can actually heat your hands up just because of its conductivity and how it seals in heat. So you're seeing things start to come into play. I mean, there's bamboo liners coming out now that actually wick sweat like a thousand times better than than traditional sweat wicking materials. There's things from the natural world that are coming into play that are really becoming interesting. So you're only going to see gear get better, Jim. Tim, great information. Thanks very much. Absolutely, Jim. Thanks for the time. And I'm glad, uh, I'm glad we could talk about this stuff. I've been speaking with Tim Calhoun. Tim is the Vice President of Sales at Quinn Design, and he is an elected board member of the Motorcycle Industry Council. IMS Products makes high-quality parts for motorcycles, and they've been doing it since 1976. That's why you'll find IMS Products on just about every off-road racer's bike in the top levels of the game. The owner of IMS, Scott Wright, is also an avid adventure rider. He's also a former Baja 1000 winner. So you know the people that are behind manufacturing these pegs that we talk about um, on Adventure Rider Radio are all about passion. And passion drives great products. There's no doubt. IMS makes a full line of foot pegs specifically for adventure riders, specifically for the type of riding that you do. IMS foot pegs enhance your control of the bike by ensuring that your feet have the traction, the leverage, and the ergonomics that allow you to weight your pegs like the pros, yet still reach your controls properly. All IMS foot pegs are made with cast-certified stainless steel, which means they look great and they're extremely durable and exquisitely designed. They're all made in the USA. They're all warranted for life. You can't go wrong here. IMSproducts.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And by the way, have a look at their large ADV-1 and ADV-2 pegs. Those are impressive pegs. IMSproducts.com. When it comes to taking care of your hands, you cannot ignore hand guards. Every adventure bike needs hand guards. They protect your hands from branches, stones, even weather, but they also protect your bike. Those expensive levers on your bike, your brake and your clutch lever. It only takes one drop to break a lever and which can be expensive, but it also can be extremely inconvenient to say the least, depending on where you are when it happens. But to get real protection, you're going to need to move beyond those factory plastic shields that come stock on some bikes and make sure your handguards have a backbone. Now, I've run Barkbusters handguards for many years and they work really, really well for me. So I decided for this segment, I'm going to call Matthew Philpot. 
Matthew is the owner of Barkbusters in Australia. I'm Matthew Frillpot from Barkbusters Handguards. I look after the design of uh, most of the products um, and a bit of guidance of where the company goes. Matthew, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Barkbuster Handguards. Now, what is Barkbuster Handguards? What is the company? Well, we manufacture handguards for motorcycles. Started out probably 35 or 36 years ago. Um, It was mostly just an aluminium bar for uh, off-road motorcycles for crashing through the bush. And um, over the years, it's developed into something that just about works for every motorcycle. So we have products for uh, motocross bikes, adventure bikes, which is very popular, road bikes, and even uh, we have this AeroGP product for road race bikes as well as a little lever protector. Wow. So um, pretty well anything to do with um, uh, protection for your hands and levers there. 30-some-odd years. That's a long time. Yeah. Yes. That is a long time. <laughs> well, and, and the name Barkbusters is so common too. I mean, people use it as a generic name almost, don't they? They, they refer to Barkbusters as anything that protects your hands. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Which um, is a good and a bad thing, I suppose. Sometimes there's a bit of confusion in the market to which is the uh, real product. There's yeah. a lot of other brands out there and they, you know, a lot of them make great products. But um, yeah, there's only one true Barkbusters. How did Barkbusters get started? Uh, it started uh, by a guy with the name of Ted Goddard. He was one of the first Australians to ever um, ride uh, in the 16 Enduro. And um, uh, that was many, many years ago, obviously. Uh, and he um, was a hardcore Enduro rider, so he started making those back in, oh, was probably early 80s, I think it was. Hmm. And, um, yeah, he owned the business for quite a few years and then it was sold to... Uh, myself, probably, oh, I think it was about 22 years ago, 23 years ago. And it's just uh, grown on from there. Why, why would you buy a, a Barkbuster company? Barkbuster company. Why would you buy Barkbuster handguards? Uh, well, I bought the business uh, from uh, because I was involved with it a little bit in helping with the development. And uh, I was sponsored by uh, the original owner when I was racing Enduro. Uh, so he was wanting to retire and get out. So it was uh, an ideal opportunity for us to get in. Mm. So how did the racing go? Did you stop doing that? Yeah, I raced for probably 10 years in Duros, rode, rode one uh, international six-day Enduro, um, and, but mostly throughout Australia. Right. So you, you raced for 10 years and then tried to find some way to make a living at doing what you love to do. That's about it, Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk about handguards for those who don't know what a handguard is and what it's supposed to do. Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, so the idea is, I suppose, there's a couple of things. One is if the bike is to fall over, it protects your levers and uh, your hands. Uh, if you're riding through the bush, well, then it'll stop a lot of the brush and things like that uh, from trees and debris from other bikes uh, hitting against your hands but also uh, is great for weather protection, and that's why a lot of people put them on. So if you're riding in cold conditions, it uh, keeps uh, the wind and the chill off your hands. Mm. Yeah, and it almost doubles um, doubles use there, doesn't it? I mean, you, you can buy yeah. it for protection, and then you can add a bigger um, deflector on it, I guess, and, and you've got yourself some wind protection as well. 
That's right. Yes. And with our product range, we have uh, sort of a fairly universal shape uh, backbone for the majority of our products. And you can change the plastic guard on that uh, to what suits your needs. So if in summertime, you might want to run a nice thin little guard. Uh, so it has got looks nice like a carbon fiber one we have, which looks good. Uh, but wintertime, you might go to the storm guard, which is much bigger and covers your hand much better. Uh, and gives you better protection from the elements. Now, just for an audio description here of, of the handguard itself, we're, we're talking about something that, that clamps onto the bar, usually clamps onto the bar, and then has, a, has an aluminum bar that wraps around to the, and fastens to the end of the handlebar, sort of uh, like a little fence around your where your fingers go. Correct, yeah. We, we've got a couple of different styles for off-road and adventure use uh we the aluminium bar mounts at two points so it's at the end of the handlebar and then with a clamp around the handlebar uh where generally where it raises up inside the controls um but if it's for um uh, road bike use a single point mount is fine because really it's just weather protection and that's a, a key thing that a lot of people don't understand they think oh as a handguard that's going to protect me if i fall over but if it's only mounted in one point it's not very secure. It's, you know, it's primarily there just for weather protection if it's a single point mount. Yeah, and you do see that on some uh, some new dual sport bikes, don't you? They come with just a, basically, it's just a plastic wind deflector. Yes, that's right. And we do also make like a motocross enduro style handguard, which is mounted around near your controls and it's an open-ended arrangement and that works fine for weather protection and protection from the debris from other bikes. Uh, but in the event of uh, a crash, then it may not protect your levers from getting broken. Yeah, I don't understand that. I've never understood why they wouldn't just run the aluminum lever. I mean, it can't weigh that much to make that much difference. There's there's probably, like say for our average universal handguard with the aluminium backbone, it weighs around a kilo, uh, whereas you had just a lightweight plastic MX style guard, the weight is probably more like, you know, 400 grams, something like that. Oh, I see. So, that so could... for a guy that's racing, you know, every bit of weight counts, hmm. you know, every gram counts. So uh, they like to keep them light. So for the adventure rider, you're better off to go with a full aluminum bar and, and cut your, your toothbrush handle off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something something like that's that. That's about right. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of the adventure bikes come with a plastic handguard, which does mount in two points. And for wind protection, they're generally not too bad. But if you fall over the bike, generally they'll just move out of the way and then break your lever. Mm. So uh, that's where our product is quite good with the aluminium backbone to uh, give you that strength in case it does fall over. And and the thing is with them with adventure riding, you know, even if you just buzz down a little trail, it's it can be the small sticks that whack your hand that that you get protection from uh, with a handguard. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, and that can that can be big because um, I've certainly had that uh, that happen before. In in particular, before I've I've mounted my um, hand guards, I had an incident where I had a stick just rip my hand right off the bar, and it wasn't a very big stick. It doesn't take much when you're moving down the no. trail. Uh, ouch. Mm, yeah. No, I didn't get any damage from it, but it, it sure shocked me. And and it prompted me to just make sure that I got my bark busters on as fast as I could. But in any case, so let, let's talk about design. What goes into um, making a handguard? Uh, generally, we'll, if there's a new model come out, we'll get it into our factory and see if we've got 
some components that will fit from our previous model or other models, we would probably have uh, 40 or 50 different designs so and a lot of different parts so we can mix and match parts to get it to fit. Uh, and the, the key thing is making it fit so it clears the windscreen, clears all the cables and controls as best you can. Some bikes, the windscreen's very close uh, to when the handlebars are at full lock. So it is difficult to get uh, clearance always, but we try our best to make a backbone that fits in around everything. So there's a lot goes into it. It's not a simple thing. Um, and especially the adventure bikes, they you can't just put a universal handguard on them. They do things so much different on adventure bikes with you know the, the windscreen on there and the brake hoses and everything seems to be different on an adventure bike compared to your average uh, dual sport bike like a KLR650, DR650. So I, I guess when you're when you're working with uh, adventure bikes or dual sport bikes, you're also thinking about um, not just uh, protection as far as damage goes, but for wind and weather. Correct. Yeah, we, we try and think about all those things just to make it uh, as good as it can be for the customer. So when, when you're making these bars, is there room for give? I mean, you know, you hear sometimes when they, when people design things, um, depending on what it is, I remember somebody told me about crash bars one time that they, they had designed their crash bars in a way that they would absorb some of the force. Is that the case with hand guards or are they rigid and solid? Uh, they're generally fairly rigid, but being aluminium, it does flex a little bit. Um, and there's different length bars too. So, you know, uh, the longer it is, the probably the more it might flex a little bit, but that's a design thing that you have to do it at length because of some constraints on the handlebar. Uh, but generally a shorter one would probably be stronger. Now, is the aluminum hardened? Yes, yeah. When we uh, process it in our factory, it's in a fairly soft state and then we'll heat treat it after it's been bent to shape to bring it up to a, a higher tensile strength. So that makes it, re- that allows it to retain its shape, even if it gets bumped and bashed, I mean, within reason. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The A lot of the Chinese products that come into the countries, you know, they, they generally they're really soft. So you have one fall and they'll bend to like plasticine, but mm. um, any handguard manufacturer that does it right, they'll heat treat them and, uh, put a lot more, which puts a lot more strength into it. So it'll take a lot more impact before it bends. Now, um, when you, uh, when you get a, a new bike and you were saying about you're trying the different components, do you have, a, you have a bunch of stock brackets and things like that, that you've cast up yourself for your company? Yes. Yeah. We've got a lot of custom parts that we design and manufacture ourselves. And, uh, we always try and find something that works uh, off the shelf of all the bits we've got. If we can't, then sometimes we've got to custom make another part to make it fit. Mm. What, do you, what do you recommend that people look for um, in a handguard? Uh, I suppose you know, it depends on their criteria, really, what they're after in a handguard. But um, if, if they're wanting a two-point mount, you know, then the uh, the strength is very important. And you know, it's got to be securely mounted at both ends um, and then, you know, probably so you can have a different deflectors is a good idea too. So if you're summertime, you don't need the big one, you can put a smaller one on. And when it gets colder, you can put a, a bigger guard on to give you better weather protection. 
Now for adventure bikes, uh, I guess you would recommend always using a, a two point connection. In other words, one that has a, that clamps onto the bar and fastens to the end of the bar. Yeah, very important. I think for adventure bike riding, nothing worse than being out on an adventure in the middle of the bush and you fall over and break a lever. Yeah, and uh, it gets very difficult to ride the bike if you've got a broken clutch lever or brake lever. What um what makes your hand guards different than other people's? Uh, probably more so on the adventure bike side, we custom make them to fit the bikes. So the customer can, the customer can buy it and they know it'll be an easy fit up for them. Um, a lot of other manufacturers don't go to that trouble to make them custom for the bike. So it's a universal guard that fits. Good luck. If it doesn't, bend it to make it fit. But we do get emails from people all the time telling us how the you know, they've been riding on the road, they're sliding down the road and the handguard uh, saved the day type of thing. Right. Um, you might get a bit scratched up, but the hand didn't get scratched up and uh, the levers are all intact. So we do get emails from time to time from customers just saying how pleased they are with the product and uh, how well it did the job. A lot of people too saying just how easy it is to fit the product. They, uh, It's one thing they do like about our product is that it is easy to fit. Mm, well, that is important, isn't it? Because it, it's a, it's fairly in-depth if you have to start messing around, which I've done with mine because I changed my handlebars. But um, it takes a lot to get the thing lined up and, and get the bend in the bar correctly. Uh, and like you said, so it doesn't hit the, the windshield. Yeah, yes, that's right. <clears throat> it's uh, not all that simple, really. And uh, we try and take all the hard work out of it for the customer so they can uh, fit it up quite easily. Is there anything else you think we should uh, be talking about with handguards? Uh, well, I suppose the other thing we do too is uh, we have, uh, even though we've talked about the different size plastics, we also have uh, LED lights that can go on them as well. So it's like an LED running light. Um, and the great thing with those, it really increases the visibility of the bike when you're going down the road. Mm. Um, and it, it just... If you can think about two lights, we are one each side at the handguard, it actually broadens the appear, appearance of the bike by having those uh, white uh, running lights out there. So there's other things like that you can consider and add on uh, to your handguards as well. I like that. Yeah, that's really good for visibility. Now, I have a, a, one other question I want to ask you about. The aluminum, we talked about the aluminum being hardened. Can it be bent? I mean, can you, like, is it meant to be uh, maneuvered if you have to, to fit it to a bike? Yeah, you can, certainly can still bend it. Uh, best way to do that is to wrap a bit of cloth around it, put it in a vice, and probably get a big, large, uh, adjustable wrench on the other end of it and uh, pull it into shape wherever you need it. Um, sometimes we'll do that when we're sort of custom making things to, to get a uh, get a fit right. We might just tweak it a little bit uh, just for a trial and then uh, work out a bend procedure with the equipment that we've got. But same as any metal, you, you don't want to be bending it back and forth too many times. No, no, definitely not. You want to try and minimize that. But yeah, if you need to, you can do that. And it's not really necessary to heat it. Uh, to bend it because if you do that then you'll probably uh, lose a bit of its strength so it's better just to probably do it cold and especially if it's only a fairly small bend if you go too far well then it does tend to stress it quite a bit but uh, it's surprising just how much you can bend it Matthew thank you very much for your time I appreciate it my pleasure great to talk to you 
I've been speaking with Matthew Philpot, the owner of Barkbusters Handguards in Australia. Their website is barkbusters.net. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks from our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener, thank you very much. Hey, that was our gearing up um, episode, and we're going to have more of those coming up in the future as we tackle, we get into learning about things to help us gear up our bikes and ourselves for adventure or for whatever kind of riding you're doing. It's all about gaining some knowledge here. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. Hey, if you're not doing it already, we do need your support. There's a bunch of different ways you can do it. We would love to get you on our patron team, which is a monthly support. There's a lot of benefits to doing that, so you'll you'll definitely want to have a look at that. But if you're looking at a, a straight uh, donation, anything $10 or more gets you a sticker for your pannier, your toolbox, your door, somebody else's door. Um, anything $50 or more gets you a shout-out on our Raw show. And, of course, that always reminds me to say, don't forget about our Raw show. It's a separate show. It's very popular. It only comes out once a month. It's a roundtable talks, a spinoff from Adventure Rider Radio, where a group of us get together talk motorcycles, travel all kinds of things. I think you're going to enjoy it. Check it out. You need to subscribe separately. Anywhere podcasts are found, you can find Adventure Rider Radio Raw and Adventure Rider Radio. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 